You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Acts chapter 13. It serves us well to be reminded from time to time that you and I are involved in a war, and that our enemy is real, our enemy is great, our enemy is powerful, he is resourceful, he is strong, he is crafty, he seeks our destruction, our deception, or our downfall, or all three if he can manage, either one of those, any one of those, any combination of those, or all three of those. Uh, he is a resourceful enemy. He is a hateful enemy, he is a real enemy, and we're involved in a very real war. Even though we do not see necessarily all of the battles raging around us, we do get a glimpse from time to time into some of the battles that take place and what our enemy is up to. And no, I'm not talking about the war on terrorism, not talking about any physical war, I'm talking about a spiritual war. As Martin Luther wrote in his hymn, our enemy is... uh, The words just escaped me. Mighty fortress is our God. He wrote about our enemy which is real, armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. His name is Satan. He is the prideful father of all that is evil and wicked. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is a deceiver. He is the father of lies. He is a murderer from the beginning, Scripture says. And he is the type of enemy who stands in the presence of God and does all that he can to undo us, to threaten us, to accuse us, and he hates us. And everything that is good and righteous and holy and true, he is against. Everything that God does, he seeks to undo. And the apostle says we are not ignorant of his devices. We know how he works. Scripture shows us how he works. We know what his tactics are. We know what he is after. We know what he wants to accomplish. And for the last 6,000 years of human history, he has been about trying to accomplish his goals, which is to oppose all that God is and all that God does and all that God stands for. We see how he works. We know how he works. But we need not fear him, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. And though this world with devils filled, we can simply rest in our God who is on the winning side and we know that we are on the winning side, and we know how this war is going to end, and we know what his destiny is going to be. And in spite of the fact that he is very persevering and very crafty and very powerful, in spite of the fact that we see how he works and we know how he works and we know what he wants to accomplish and how he wants to go about accomplishing it, we know that we win. We see him working throughout the book of Acts because... You can bet your last nickel that wherever the church advances, wherever the gospel gains ground, Satan is going to attack that very ground. He's going to attack that gospel. He's going to attack that person. He is going to oppose whatever it is that seeks to advance God's purposes and God's will. Satan will be there to counter it and to attack it. We see that in the book of Acts, don't we? Do you remember back in chapter 5, the early church 
generous and giving and benevolent. They had needs amongst them and they would sell their property and give to the poor. And there was unity and oneness and love and graciousness and giving in in the midst of this early church. And Satan had his man on the scene. His name was Ananias. And Satan filled Ananias' heart to try and lie to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias fell prey to it. He believed the lie that he could lie to God. It cost him his life. And in the person of Ananias, Satan tried to creep into that early fellowship and to destroy their generosity and to destroy the testimony of a life-changing gospel. And he sought to turn that early generosity of Christians into some prestigious, prideful, grandstanding event where somebody could give a little bit and make an example out of themselves while keeping back what they said they were going to give or what they said they were giving. And it happened again in Acts chapter 8. Do you remember when the gospel went outside of Jerusalem finally and went to the Samaritans? The gospel was making huge advances, huge inroads into Samaria. Philip went down there preaching the gospel and and uh, Peter and John heard that the Samaritans had believed, but they hadn't received the Spirit yet. And that struck them as odd because in their experience, everything that they had seen at the moment of belief, you received the Spirit. So they went down to check this out. And what did they see? Oh, the Samaritans had believed, but they hadn't received the Spirit. And so praying for them and associating themselves with the Samaritans, they laid their hands on those Samaritans believers, and they received the Spirit of God as well. And Satan had his man on the scene in Samaria. Do you remember his name? Simon, the sorcerer. And he saw this transaction happen. And he had been accepted in as part of the church. His belief was not real. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And all of his motives were revealed when he said to Peter and John, how much do you want for that? Want for what? The ability to give the Spirit. That's quite a trick. How much do you want for that? You give me the ability to the, that when I lay my hands on somebody, they would receive the Spirit, and I'll pay you what you ask for it. And Peter was able to see right underneath of his wolf's clothing, his sheep's clothing, and to see the wolf that was there, and Peter rebuked him. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Your heart's not right with God, and you have no portion or part in this matter. You need to repent of your wickedness. And Simon didn't. Just asked Peter to pray for him. I'll pray for me that what you've said will not come upon me. And never repented of his sin. And Satan, in the person of Simon, tried to plant his man in that church in Samaria. And if he had not been exposed, that whole Samaritan work would have crumbled around this man who was a wolf in sheep's clothing and a false teacher. Every time the Gospel takes a step, Satan is there to attack it, to oppose it to try and undermine it. And it happened again in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas have been called to a ministry by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. So the church did that, praying and fasting and laying their hands on them. The church sent them out. And they go from Antioch to Seleucia, and they sail from Seleucia to the island of Cyprus, landing at Salamis, and there they begin to proclaim the word of the Lord. And they work their way all the way through the island of Cyprus, all the way over to the west coast to the city of Paphos, and there they encounter a magician. Satan's man on the scene again. And this time he is in the court of the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. And as Paul and Barnabas arrive in Cyprus, they work their way through the island, preaching the word of God, proclaiming the word of God, bringing people to faith in Christ. And likely before they even arrived at Paphos, Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor, heard of their ministry because when they arrived there, he summoned them. The proconsul would like to see you. 
He wants an audience with the two of you. And so they show up, and it is in the, the, the court of the proconsul that they meet a man named Bar-Jesus. He's a magician. His name means son of salvation. How ironic and how inappropriate for a Jewish false prophet. Bar-Jesus, far from being a son of salvation, he opposes salvation. He's a son of damnation. He's a magician. And he was employed by Sergius Paulus in the court of the Roman proconsul as a spiritist, a diviner, a, a magician. He used his tricks. And here, standing before the Roman governor of the island of Cyprus are Paul and Barnabas and Bar-Jesus. And Luke has already set up for us this encounter that takes place between the two of them. Now you may ask yourself, why would a Roman proconsul employ a Jewish false prophet magician? Why would he have such a man in his court to begin with? Does that sound unbelievable to you? You know, the Romans placed a great deal of emphasis on magic arts, soothsaying, divining. The Roman governors, the Roman emperors, the Roman senate, these people employed their own oracle givers, their own little diviners and soothsayers to divine and soothsay the will of God. And, and these uh, charlatans like Bar-Jesus would show up and they were very slick, very professional, very knowledgeable, and they employed sort of a pseudoscience. They showed up with their stupid little bag of hat tricks where they could they could lure people into believing what they said by a little sleight of hand and some smoke and mirrors and some clouds and performing these little tricks. And, and they would lure the Romans in. And Sergius Paulus employed this man, although an intelligent man, he employed this magician who was in his court and his job was to perform tricks to divine the will of God, to know the will of God. And these charlatans like Bar-Jesus were nicely dressed. They were very intellectual. They were very skilled at what they did, very professional. And you combine that with the fact that he is a Jew and the Jews had a reputation among the Romans for having a long history of spiritual understanding and interpreting dreams like Daniel and all of that spirituality that went with it. The, the Romans kind of revered the Jews because their religion was an old one. And they had good soothsayers, magicians, wise men like Daniel that they could point back to. And so the Romans employed them and they welcomed them in. So Bar-Jesus is a very professional. He's a charlatan. He's got his hat full of tricks and he stands in the court of Sergius Paulus and does his smoke in his mirrors. And Sergius Paulus is taken in with that. And like every ministry that proclaims the gospel... Paul and Barnabas would eventually butt heads with the kingdom of darkness. Peter and John did it in Samaria. They did it in Jerusalem in the early church. And Paul and Barnabas found that they weren't but a few weeks into their gospel proclaiming ministry. And they come head to head with Bar-Jesus in the court of Sergius Paulus. And the confrontation between Paul and between this magician who's also called Elimus shows us two things primarily. First, it shows us the power of God over Satan. And second, the power of the gospel to save. In Acts chapter 13, we're going to pick up the story in verse 8. Paul and Barnabas have been summoned. We look at, looked at that last week. They're standing in the court of Sergius Paulus. Barnabas and Paul are there, likely John Mark as well, because he's accompanying them. Remember that. And then Bar-Jesus is there, this Jewish false prophet, this magician. Verse 8 says, But Elimus, which is how his name was translated. His name was Bar-Jesus, also Elimus. Elimus is likely a Greek name, which is a Greek transliteration of an Arabic word for magician. He was just simply called the Greek name for magician in the sort of court of Sergius Paulus. That's what he went by, Elimus. 
And so Luke says that Elimus, because he's the magician, or so his name is translated, he was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Paul and Barnabas were there. They had been brought there on this official inquiry. Sergius Paulus wanted to know what it was that Paul and Barnabas had been preaching from town to town and village to village throughout his island. And they bring them in and and Bar-Jesus is there. Why is he in the court? You know why he's there? He's Sergius Paulus's spiritual advisor. As Paul and Barnabas begin to articulate their message, Sergius is going to be turning to Bar-Jesus every once in a while for his response to this. He's the chief spiritist in the king's court, so to speak. He's the spiritual advisor. And he's going to get Paul and Barnabas's perspective and he's going to bounce it off his, his paid spiritual advisor that's in his court. And that's why Bar-Jesus is there. And Luke says that Bar-Jesus, Salimus, began to oppose them. Paul and Barnabas would begin to proclaim their message and he would have something that he would counter with. That's not true. You can't believe that. That's not the way it was. That's not what happened. That's not how it is. See, he was a Jewish false prophet, which means he would have had an understanding of the Jewish prophets and the Jewish law. He would have understood them well enough. Luke doesn't tell us what it is that Bar-Jesus did particularly to oppose them, but we just know that while Paul and Barnabas were explaining the gospel to Sergius Paulus, Bar-Jesus was there trying to counter it, to draw his attention away, and to oppose the work of Paul and Barnabas, seeking to turn Sergius Paulus away from the faith. Maybe he was debating the Old Testament Scriptures with them. As Paul and Barnabas would begin to explain the Old Testament prophets to Sergius Paulus, maybe Bar-Jesus was there to say, no, that's not how you interpret that passage. That's their interpretation. Let me give you my interpretation of that passage. Maybe maybe Bar-Jesus was just blaspheming Christ, calling Him a liar or deceiver, or saying that He really didn't rise from the dead. Maybe He was there subtly planting these doubts into Sergius Paulus' mind. That's not really what happened. That's not what Jews believe. You can't believe that. Here's a good question for them to ask. Maybe it was more subtle. I'm not sure exactly what it was that he did it, but we do know that he was opposing them. He stood against them. In the court, while they are trying to explain the gospel, with Sergius Paulus' destiny on the line, Bar-Jesus is there to insert his venom every once in a while, trying to turn the man away from Paul and Barnabas. Why was he doing that? His motive is not difficult to discern. Let me suggest a couple things. First of all, he was a Jewish false prophet. And as a Jew, he would have been opposed to the gospel message to begin with. Because as a Jew who understood the scriptures, Bar-Jesus would have recoiled at the idea of a Jewish Messiah saving a Gentile, a Roman governor. Salvation is for the Jews. The Messiah is for the Jews. Not for Gentiles. So the very idea that two Orthodox Jews would step into the court and begin to proclaim the way of salvation through a Jewish Messiah to a Gentile man, he would bristle at that. But there's more to it than that. It's money. There's a financial motive. He's employed by Sergius Paulus. And what happens if Sergius Paulus becomes a believer? He's no longer employed by Sergius Paulus. There had to have come a point in hearing all of this that Bar-Jesus would realize, if Paul keeps this up, I'm going to be out of a job. And so he begins to oppose for his own self-interest. He has to keep Sergius Paulus in the dark if he is to keep his job. It's that simple. 
He's the employed spiritist. And if this man becomes a believer, he has no need for him. And that's the bottom line. And so he begins to oppose everything Paul and Barnabas say, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the light into darkness so that he can keep his job, he can keep his standing. He does not want to take back seat to Jesus Christ as a spiritual influence in Sergius Paulus's life. He wants to run the show. He has his influence. He's in the court of the governor. It's a good place to be. He has his ability to influence people and to be with the king, and he wants to keep that. Friends, listen to this. Keep in mind that when people oppose you or the message, that it's not personal. This was nothing personal between Bar-Jesus and Barnabas and Saul. People will oppose you for a hundred different reasons, a thousand different reasons, all of them selfish, few of them personal. It's not that they hate you, it's that they hate Christ. And it's not that they hate you, it's that they hate the message that you bring. Sergius Paulus did not want to lose his job. He did not want the truth shining light on his falsehood. He did not want to be exposed for the, for the cheap charlatan with a stupid bag of tricks that he was. He did not want the gospel coming in and delivering people from his little corner of the kingdom of darkness. It was a completely selfish motive that he did. And people will oppose you and your gospel for the same reason. It's not personally directed against you. It's directed at who you represent and what you represent. He loved darkness rather than light, so he hated the light. He loved wickedness rather than righteousness, and so he hated the righteousness. And Paul and Barnabas came preaching a gospel of light and a gospel of righteousness, and he knew that it was going to cost him personally. And people will oppose us. They'll oppose our message. They'll oppose the gospel, and they'll oppose Christ. Because the gospel that we proclaim, if it is the biblical gospel, will cost them everything, without exception. You must be willing to take up your cross and follow Him if you're going to be a disciple. You have to be willing to count the cost, to repent of your sin, and to give up everything for Him who asked it of us. We do not proclaim an easy gospel. The gospel that we proclaim is the gospel of a crucified self. And it assaults us. And it assaults our pride. And Bar-Jesus heard this. He ground his teeth. He didn't want anything to do with it. And he was going to oppose it. Now, I think Paul was kind of a gracious guy. I think Paul was the type of man who would walk into a synagogue in, in a crowd like this and he would take out the Old Testament Scriptures and begin to proclaim them and to preach them and to teach them and to interpret them for the people and seek to lead people to Christ. And if there was somebody in the audience who had a legitimate question, a legitimate concern, a legitimate argument, he would hear it. Scripture says that he reasoned with people. He sought to persuade men to the gospel. That's what he did. And if there was a legitimate argument, a legitimate objection, Paul would deal with that in reasoning with people. People would question him about the resurrection of the dead. And he didn't just write them off and rain down fire and brimstone from heaven on them. He was willing to reason and argue and persuade with men to bring them to his way of thinking. And he was gifted at that and able to do that. But there comes a point when you realize that you're casting your pearls before swine. There comes a point when you realize this individual's not interested in the truth. They're interested in opposing the truth. They're not interested in what is right and wrong. They're interested in protecting their own wickedness and their own iniquity. I don't know how long it was that took Paul to figure that out with Elemus, but there was a point when Paul realized this man's objections are not coming from him. He's really not teachable. He's not here to learn. He's not here to gain more of an understanding. 
There came a point in time when Paul realized, by addressing this man, Bar-Jesus, I'm casting my pearls before swine. And so look what Luke says in chapter 13, verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, and just a little footnote here, from this point forward, Luke will always refer to him as Paul, never Saul. When Luke talks about him, it's always Paul. And he uses the uses this time when he is before a Gentile audience to remind us that his name is changed. Paul from this point forward, Saul from this point forward was Paul. And his name means small or little one. Small one is what Paul means. Kind of an appropriate name, isn't it, for somebody who viewed himself as the least of all the saints and the least of the apostles? And every time he said his name, it reminded him, I'm nothing. As a reminder to him, I'm nothing. I'm dispensable. I'm disposable. Somebody else who's far greater than me. So Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. It makes all the difference in the world how you read those words. I mean, I could read them a lot differently, couldn't I? You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not seek to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Does that sound powerful? I can't even picture Paul saying that that way. But I can picture Paul turning to him and staring him down and putting maybe his finger right in the middle of his chest and saying this, you're full of all deceit, you're full of all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Hey, man, that's tough stuff. You charlatan, you devil. And Paul plays on his name. His name was Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. Paul basically says, you're the son of damnation. You're the spawn of Satan, the offspring of the evil one. (laughs) Man, that's harsh. I would not want Paul saying that to me. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? In other words, bar Jesus, what God has laid out, his way of salvation is straight, it's clear, it's direct, and you're taking it and you're taking the straight ways of the Lord and you're seeking to make them crooked and twist them into confused people. That was his job to bring about confusion in areas that should be straight and clear and plain. That's what Bar-Jesus was doing. Paul and Barnabas were saying, this is the way it is, Sergius. A, B, C, one, two, three. And Bar-Jesus was jumping in there saying, it's not that simple. It's a little bit different. It's not like that. It's like this, keeping him confused and keeping him in darkness and keeping his mind in bondage to his sin. That's what he sought to do. And Paul says, you're taking what is straight, you're taking what is plain, and you're making it crooked. You son of the devil. So the hand of the Lord will be upon you, Paul says, and you will not see the sun for a time because a mist and darkness is going to fall on you and you're going to be blind. Now Paul has exposed the the source of Bar-Jesus' opposition, which is satanic. He has opposed the motive behind it because he's an enemy of righteousness and he hates the truth. And he has exposed the result of it, which is to make crooked what God has set forward as straight. Now I want you to notice something significant in the passage. A little detail that I read over rather quickly, actually. Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said this. You have a problem with that? If it weren't for that phrase, you and I might read that and say, oh, here we go. This is early on in Paul's ministry. He's obviously young. He's rash. He's ambitious. He's zealous. And here Paul just slips into the flesh and we have this outburst of anger that's completely uncharacteristic of Paul. And he did this in the flesh and he shouldn't have done this because he ended up driving Bar-Jesus away and Bar-Jesus never got saved as a result of this. 
We might think that this is just the product of his anger, the product of his flesh. That he just overstepped his bounds and Paul couldn't control his tongue. But Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said this. Now Paul, whatever happened to the meek shall inherit the earth. Whatever happened to blessed are the peacemakers. Whatever happened to speak evil of no man. Didn't you write that? How is it that the Apostle Paul could be so straightforward, so brash, so abrasive, and at the same time being filled and controlled with the Spirit of God? Friends, the only conclusion that we can draw from this is that if you in your mind think that being controlled and filled with the Spirit of God means that you're weak, that you're timid, that you're cowardly, that you never speak the truth no matter how abrasive it is, you have a wrong idea of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's the bottom line. Paul called a spade a spade. You're the son of the devil. And the works of your father you do. Do you remember Jesus said the same thing? You are of your father the devil. And he's a murderer from the beginning and a liar from the beginning. And his works you do. The son of God said that. Friends, there are times when you just have to speak the truth and say the source of what you're doing is nothing less than satanic. And here's where you're at. And here's what you need to do. As unpopular as that may be, that's what Paul did. Being filled with the Spirit, he uttered those words. I have a hard time picturing an apostle saying that, let alone a Spirit-filled apostle, let alone the Apostle Paul, Spirit-filled, saying those words. But nonetheless, he just called a spade a spade. You and I are tempted to put our hands in the pocket in the presence of an Elimus and say, well, you know, I can see it your way. I guess you got a point there. Yeah, I can see that argument. I guess, well, yeah, I'll believe the way I want to believe and you believe the way you want to believe and we'll just go on living life the way it is. And Not Paul. Not Paul at all. You know what's at stake? The eternal salvation of a Roman governor. That's what's at stake. The gospel is not a game. We don't play games with the gospel message. We don't have a message that people can take or people can leave without ramification. We have a message upon which hinges the eternal destiny of every soul, whether they hear it or don't hear it. What they do with Jesus Christ determines where they will spend eternity. And Paul knew that the stakes are high. And he knew that he could not tolerate the presence of this man who would seek to turn another man away from eternal life into eternal destruction. Because if Bar-Jesus had his way, Sergius Paulus would go to the grave spiritually blinded and spend eternity separated from Christ, being punished for his sins. And Paul knew the stakes are too high to play games with my message. And so here it is, and here's what you're doing, and here's what you need to understand. Now let the chips fall where they may. Friends, do you have that kind of boldness? You willing to do that? To just tell people, this is what's at stake. And this is what's going on. And we're not going to play games with our gospel. So, having said that, immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. (laughs) Here was this proud, pompous, professional, prideful magician standing in the presence of Sergius Paulus, an intellectual who sought to take on the Apostle Paul, seeking to turn this man away from the faith. And Paul, in a few words, and all of a sudden he's groping around for somebody to take his hand. He can't see a thing. A mist and a darkness falls over his eyes, and Paul says it's for a period of time. It's a temporary blindness. But he falls blind. 
This is in front of the king. This is in front of the king's entourage. This is in front of the king's officials. This is in the court of Sergius Paulus. And it's not just the four of them or the five of them standing there. This is in the presence of all of these people who are likely there in attendance to hear what Paul and Barnabas have said. This is an official inquisition. And now Bar-Jesus, who is this magician who should be able to perform tricks himself and to do things like this, all of a sudden he's struck blind. And he can't undo his blindness. How's that for a trick? It's almost as if the Lord says, you want to try a trick? I'll show you just how stupid your little parlor tricks are. Try this one on for size. You're going to go blind for a while. And now he can't even find his bag of tricks. It demonstrates, my friends, the power of God over Satan. Second, the power of the gospel to save. Because look at what Luke tells us in verse 12. Then when the, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Elimus went blind so that Sergius Paulus could see. Did you catch that? Elimus went blind so that Sergius Paulus could see. Now he could see the issues. Now he could see what was going on. All of a sudden, the spiritual eyes of his understanding were opened up, and he understood what was at stake. He was able now to see who the fraud was and who the real McCoy was. Suddenly, he understands, Bar Jesus, Elimus, is a fraud. He's a charlatan. This man, Paul, he speaks the Word of God. There's no record that Elimus ever believed. No record that he repents. Luke doesn't tell us how long he was blind for. Was it a day, three days, a week, a month, three months, a year? We don't know. But being physically blind didn't open the eyes of his spiritual heart any. Because Luke tells us that the proconsul believed, but Elimus was just led around by the hand. And just like Simon in Acts chapter 8, no record Simon ever repented or believed. It had real, genuine conversion. And Elimus is the same thing. He went blind, Sergius Paulus could see, and Sergius Paulus believed. But look how Luke says at the end of verse 12. He believed, being amazed at what? The miracle? No. The miracle worker? No. The sign that was performed? The trick that Paul played? The blindness? What was he amazed at? The teaching of the Lord. That's Luke's way of reminding you and I that it was not the miracle that saved the proconsul. It was not the sign that gave him the faith to believe. It was not the sign that led him to believe. What saved him was the message that Paul and Barnabas proclaimed. It's never the miracle in Scripture that saves. It's always the message that saves. He saw what happened and he believed. And you know why he believed? Because Sergius Paulus understood. God has granted to him the ability to perform this sign. It authenticates his message. It authenticates the messenger. I understand now this man speaks for God and the message that he brings is the word of God and the gospel that he preaches is the gospel of God and he believed. Being amazed at the teaching of the Lord, he was able to see the authenticity of Paul, the authenticity of his message, and then he was hungry. And the Lord opened his heart and he heeded the things spoken by Paul and he believed the message. Friends, this whole confrontation shows us the power of God over Satan and the power of our gospel to save. It's the message that saves. And now let me ask you a question. Are you as confident and bold with this message as Paul was? No matter what kind of opposition comes your way, do you take it head on? you understand it's not personal? Friends, you and I have a very important message. And our time is short, and the opposition is fierce, and the stakes are high. And I pray that God would grant us the courage and the boldness to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth with an iron fist 
and a little velvet glove. But we have to speak the truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the message to save. And we thank you, God, that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light through this message and through the gospel. And we ask, Father, that you would grant to us boldness and courage to speak the truth and to proclaim a gospel to a lost and dying world. Thank you that the message is more powerful than anything else that can be offered. And thank you that you are far more powerful than the enemy which seeks to undo the message and the ministry. We love you and we thank you and we rest in the grace that is in Christ Jesus for all of our provision and all of our protection. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.